Hello, and welcome again to the Switchboard podcast. Switchboard is a one-stop resource hub for refugee service providers in the United States. With the support of the Office of Refugee Resettlement, Switchboard offers resources, learning opportunities, research, and technical assistance on resettlement-related topics. My name is Kay Valor, and I'm a subject matter expert working with Switchboard to host this podcast series on the topic of leading during a transition. I've worked on refugee, asylee, and unaccompanied children's issues and programs for almost 40 years. I'm excited to be speaking with today's leaders. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Henny Orr. Henny is a founder and executive director of Embark, which is Ethnic Minorities of Burma Advocacy and Resource Center, Iowa's first refugee-led nonprofit service provider. Embark is a grassroots organization founded by and for refugees with the belief that sustainable change can only come from a community that is empowered to help themselves. Embark has received multiple recognitions, including the 2017 Des Moines Civil and Human Rights Commission's Human Rights Award and 2016 Yes Magazine's Solution for Iowa. Prior to joining Embark, Henny was the Executive Officer for Iowa's Office of Asian and Pacific Islander Affairs and the Status of Women at the Department of Human Rights, where she advocated for equitable access to resources for marginalized communities. The child of Korean immigrants, or has been committed to working for immigrant and refugee rights throughout her career. Ms. Orr Henny received her JD from the City University of New York School of Law. Welcome, Henny. So Henny, let's uh, get started with, with the questions. Can you talk about the toughest leadership challenge that you've faced over the last several years? I think that's a really tough question. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, as soon as one challenge comes and I pass that, and I think that was the toughest and another one sounds just very different. You know, the founding of Embark in uh, 2011 and um, getting our first grant, which was through the Office of Refugee Resettlement, really thankful for the Ethnic Community Self-Help Grant. That was very challenging just, I mean, because it was such a hope and a dream and I did just really... I uh, didn't know where, what the path would be to get to where we needed to go. And, you know, the pandemic, when that started, that was another big challenge. But then after, you know, the initial pandemic and we realized that people needed food, they needed basic essential needs and how to do that when we have a team, our team is about 70% immigrant refugees and our community, which is majority work, uh, working in the meatpacking plants were, were impacted immediately. This is before what structures were set up and there was a lack of PPE. It was really right. It was in the middle of, of pandemonium. It was triage. That was extremely challenging. But then, like I said, as I mentioned, that moment of, of challenge, I think, prepares me because there's another big challenge. And then it becomes somewhere, I think, probably in the, in the a few months into the pandemic, like mid the summer to the to the fall, when it was it was ongoing, it became it was it was the new norm. And, and you know, initially we pushed through it where in March, February, everyone galvanizers that real um energy and there's that common goal and and our team was working day and night to set up ad hoc teams and repurpose what we're doing and re, but then some you know and by the time the summer and the fall and we were living through that and 
it was harder. It was not as clear, right? So. Well, talk about sort of your guiding principles as a leader. So faced with all of that that you've just described so well, were there any particular principles that, that really stood you in good stead, um, just letting you get by day to day and lead your team uh, through all of these challenges? I think going back to the core or the purpose is that started in Bark, which is believing in the community and believing in, in what the community can do together listening, trying to listen as much as possible, especially when decisions need to be made so quickly. And oftentimes things become much more transactional. So going back to how can I listen? Um, How can I, you know, that's tough because the principle of how can I feel, you know, how, what, how can I care? Because when I'm thinking through structures and and working on plans to to solve a problem connecting that to the purpose to caring to listening to believing in in the community and our team i think um, that those are some of the principles that guide me were there were there things that that got in the way it's interesting what you have to say about how things can become very transactional but what other things were were difficult to to lead through? So what things got in the way did you feel of leading effectively? When the pandemic hit, we were looking at half our staff members also getting sick. Right. We were talking about, I mean, we are an organization that is not set up for a crisis. We have very limited infrastructure and administration and operations help, database, all of those things. We are very grassroots and the systems and the processes, it's, it, they're not very strong, really. I mean, it's, no, but we're, we are so busy out there helping and delivering and doing programs. And I think, you know, when you have something like this, you're going to go back to, do you have, can you withstand this? Is the structure, have you created something? And that's where, Immediately, it's like a hurricane falling and leveling your home and to see who's available and what can we do when everyone is devastated. Like it's our team and our community is devastated. Our personally, our, what we're having to do with at home and we're tr- and how do you bring out a sense of, of hope and, and motivate um, and also, but acknowledge that's very difficult. Yeah. I feel like, you know, I just, I want to tell everyone you can just take a day off, really. Everyone just... <laughs> Everyone should just stay home and take care of themselves and their family. And that's just not possible when it's, it's your responsibility, when it's our shared responsibility to do something. And in that, and so many times it's paralyzing, right? When you have, right when, it, right when the pandemic started, one, the majority of the community had no idea, right? I mean, everyone else was bombarded with information, uh, whether it be misinformation or false information, but people didn't take it seriously. When this, when this happened, um, you're thinking, okay, well, how can we get information not only about COVID, but about the school closing, right? How do you get information just on day-to-day with, with, with employers and with childcare? How do you do that if you don't have a support network? Then we have community, our team members 
would be trying to do trying to um, do social distancing, but then you have people knocking on your door, you know, asking for help. All our team members were getting calls all the time, right? And and our team also might not have the information. So like we had to, we really just, I mean, in move so quickly to try to do something and the best we could and failing and then doing it again, but just getting up and getting up and doing it again and again. So we immediately started videos. We did a video about COVID and we did it in so many different languages. We did it in like um, initially seven different languages. And these are languages that uh, are dialects from Burma or from different ethnic groups. And so, you know, it's information. And what do you need with information? You need information that you can understand that is accessible, that is timely, right? You also need services. So all of a sudden, you know, people couldn't go to work and there were there might be resources, let's say about housing. That means that you need to get a landlord's bill, right? You need to get, you need to get documentation. You need to be able to call, right? And so then you have, then all of a sudden you realize this entire system of services and resources is, are, is completely inaccessible. So, you said they, there are phone lines for food, but it's not that we need to call to find out where to get food. We need to call to find out how, who's going to help me get food. And that, that is really what was, you know, that, that was the, um, for us, that was the biggest crisis is how do you get essential needs, right? And how do you think about the infrastructure, the logistics, the process to do that when, when I have on my team to, uh, Two women who are pregnant, right? I have all, most of the members of our team have children, some with children under five or infants. At one point, we couldn't find a Kareni uh, speaker because everyone in the Kareni community that we knew were sick. We couldn't get tested. They couldn't get excused from work. We were looking at people who were going to be evicted. So, yeah. I mean, I think talking about the challenges and, and how we tried to distill kind of the greatest need and get get to that, um, that, that it was very helpful to hear you talk about that. And I think you did describe the challenges very well. Were there, in the midst of all that, uh, surprising strengths that you saw? And were there anything that looked like an opportunity that may have uh arisen out of out of this this uh terrible last 12 months of the pandemic i think when you're pushed to this to a place of crisis there some of the best ideas can come out because you don't have any option that that create is creativity out of need and you know what was hard was that we did not have the technology set up like we had a lot of our team members who didn't know how to use video conferencing. We have never done, we never had meeting through video conferencing. We adapted so quickly. So we have an office in Waterloo and we have an AmeriCorps program that's statewide. And we pushed to get everyone online to do a meeting together virtually. So it was the first time we've ever done that really, right? It was, um, it was very painful. And now we see that we, this is a great, tool that we can use and we and so we out of that came out a IT navigator project because we have a we have a program called 
that's the parent navigator program is moms teaching other moms or youth navigators. Always the navigator project is based on a peer-to-peer train the trainer social social learning model, right? So if you don't have to be speaking English, you don't have to speak English or be from the, the this culture and the Western culture to to be a good mom. So in a lot of the the trainings and um, programs out there are are for moms who speak English or there's just interpreting. So I say that because with our parent navigator group, it took two months about, and it took calling and problem solving about how to turn on the computer and how to turn on the volume. But in the end, a group of eight moms are, are able to, for the first time, do video conferencing, right? Then we thought, well, if they can learn, well, they can share. That's all, you know, what can you learn? And then what can you yourself do to help others? It's, it's how do we help the helper? So we have started an IT navigator project with very basic fundamental uh, IT based on what they think is important, you know, and we're finding like the, the some of the assumptions we made about digital literacy is, is not, you know, is not right. Like we thought, well, maybe they have an email address that they know how to check the email, but there's a lot of spam, right? What do I do? What's, what's a spam and what's not? Then we also did the same in Waterloo with um, a youth navigator project. Um, where older high school youth would get stipends and, and learn, create videos and materials that we can keep and share. Um, also, because of video conferences and the fact that we have meetings back to back, and I and I don't know why um, I don't ever schedule in commute time, like virtual commute time. <laughs> but the amount of meetings that I've been having to have also means that we've been able to connect with a lot of other service providers and partners, right? We found that right up off the bat, access to food pantries was a, was an issue. Why? Because of the forms, um, because of the process, because of transportation, all of those things, right? And then reaching out to those partners and, and having that conversation about how could we do things differently? And their response was, yes, how can we? What do we do? How can we work with you, right? So we got really, you know, like the school district was giving out food, lunches, which is fantastic, but during a certain time frame, once you would drive up and pick up food. And of course, a lot of families did not know about the time. A lot of kids were at home and nobody had transportation to pick them up. So we worked with the school district and volunteers and from the community, and we organized uh, food deliveries in, in April, we were probably up to about a thousand lunches a week. Um, since March, we've been delivering consistently about food produce boxes for about 250 families, but that's not possible without the, the, the church that helps us, that organizes the food boxes. Not is, that is also the work of, you know, DMARC or Eat Greater Des Moines. And now I think we're going to be looking at how the specifically food and what does what is that what that might that look like? How can we translate documents beforehand? How could we create some visuals? How can we do proxy so that someone can pick up for them? Um, how can we share data? How can we have events where people can sign up? And you know, so that's just one example, I think. Yeah. So you touched on something that leads to my next question, where when you reached out to some of these so-called mainstream groups, um, they they might really not have understood 
what they needed to do in order to be responsive to to the refugee and immigrant community. And so you obviously represented a very important bridge. The bigger question that I wanted to talk about, though, was was this the topic of inclusion. I think that a lot of larger resettlement organizations say or or state or local entities understand that their report card around inclusion probably isn't a very good one. Um, So could you talk a little bit about the best ways that you've found to communicate to organizations seeking to be more inclusive of that refugee voice when responding to not just crises, but to ongoing needs? That's a great question Uh, and a difficult one to answer, I think, because the receiving community or the mainstream or the institutions that serve, um, you know, they all do great work. But, I, you know, inclusion means not just an invitation to the table, but it, it means understanding when I can come to the table. Can, can I? How can I? Do I feel comfortable? Do I belong at the table? Do I? What are the barriers and what is the support I need to actively engage? And, you know. When I think a lot of times there's there are plans and programs and maybe sometimes it's you know it is the nature of funding and and the work we do it's not doesn't really include the voice of the community including the voice of the community is is not asking one or two people uh, is not asking it's not coming to uh, an or group to ask them for feedback after the fact. What, what does it look like from end to end from the very beginning? And is it with, with the ownership and decision-making of the community? And I know that's, that's something that here, I think in Iowa, because there aren't many, there really aren't um, ethnic community-based organizations uh, that social services here. The, the, the ones that have had some sustainability are the domestic violence organizations that are culturally specific. And that's because there's federal funding that allows large federal funding that allows them to continue at some level. And it's still a struggle, but, you know, but we're talking about many, many groups from ethnic community-based organizations that have no funding, that they themselves are struggling. And it comes with a sense of, I mean, I know people say equity all the time, but what does that mean when it comes to working with partners and, and the community? Um, is it relationship? Are we building a relationship? Are we, or are we coming in to do an assessment based on the receiving community's need? A lot of times it's like, let me talk to you so I can get information. Or can you help me do what I need to do to help the community instead of how can I help you help the community? And even if then, if that means... Well, I, we need to help you understand how to use a computer. We need to walk through the steps. We need to be there to walk with you until you know how to, I mean, it is a, a, a journey. And I think people don't see that as a journey. And they're, they're looking for, I think sometimes it's just a matter of, of can I ask someone who is of that race or um, so their opinion. And you need to have groups you need to have accountability and you need to have, you need resources and time so people can grow their leadership. It's leadership and an individual level. It's community building. So I feel like, 
you know, not, I mean, this is uh, this is ongoing, but Bark was founded because we were not part of the conversation. Right? We people were doing. I mean, I'm not a refugee myself. I'm a I'm an immigrant. I'm a Korean American child of immigrants. Um, but I would go to meetings, and it was be it would be conversations about all the things that we we cannot do. And there was nobody speaking from the community. Well, we invited them, but they're not here. Well, is you're, you're is who amongst you here are volunteering your time to do this work? How many leaders from the community are decision makers in your in, in your institution and in your organizations? Not not interpreters uh, or frontline, but how many people are decision makers? How are we growing leadership? How are we going out there and building community? I think the value, I, the value of the community and the insight of that the community brings, and all the strengths and assets are not are not being invested in and are not realized when we don't look at a system that doesn't encourage the growth of leadership and the growth of ethnic community based organizations. Thank you for that. I, there's just there's so much in there that's so valuable, and I, I appreciate all that you've said. And maybe to continue on it a little bit, so we've looked at what you faced uh, as you were developing Embark and working with the receiving community. So here we are now. We know that there at least seems to be an intention on the part of the new administration to have a better, larger, more appropriate response to, to refugee uh, certainly refugee resettlement, so helping people, saving lives by bringing people here, but then also looking at resettlement infrastructure. And I think that a lot of folks over the last four years, in the midst of, of the devastating challenges that, that policies presented, everybody was determined that, you know, when things changed, we were going to build back better and I have a personal concern that all of that wonderful sort of impulse is going to fly out the window the first time people are suddenly confronted with a real refugee program with lots of arrivals and suddenly sort of more funding. And maybe six months from now or 12 or 18 months from now, we look back and we've missed the opportunity. So I'm wondering, as you look ahead, to what almost certainly will be a more robust response to both resettlement, but then also refugee integration. What are you thinking? What are you starting to plan for? Uh, what about what you just were talking about would you most like to see uh, in terms of investments and in terms of response? I guess I am very hopeful and I'm very excited excited and glad to see that they were going back to the mission of humanitarian response and understanding the, the richness and the, the immigrant and refugee community. However, um, I'm afraid, I guess the challenge is, have we created a system or are we working on a system or are we going to perpetuate the status quo? It was not working before Trump came into power, the system. And I'm afraid it's going to be the same. We are, we, everything is so fragmented and so siloed and there are no bridges in between. As much as resettlement agencies can do, um, do you only need help for three, six months or a year? Is that 
is is as a family who's come from a refugee camp and are trying to survive and thrive here is that all that's needed you know the, the few months of service and then after that you know let's say you you come here in the spring and you and you get clothes and for the spring who's going to get you clothes for the help you get clothes for the winter you know people were didn't have food people were getting cut off from their food stamps because they couldn't renew they couldn't maintain their benefits because they received a letter it was it was it, so how are we really supporting families who are resettled and what does that look like and is it come with accessibility is it come with support is there is there an opportunity to learn and to for them to, for people to to get their get on their feet but we have a system that says you need to work first right you need to go out and work you also have we in Iowa we have maybe 80 I mean I would say from our community about 80% are secondary migrants they come over from other mm -hmm. states do those benefits follow with them there's many community members that don't read we have during covid we were we're getting we're getting calls you know our team is getting calls at night and weekend because people are suicidal. Our programs are, you know, after their resettlement period or even during resettlement, what is enough support and for a refugee family and is it integrated? And if I could squeeze in a question, because we're going to be wrapping up, how do you see your community now, the receiving community, looking ahead? Do you feel like people are calling you to the table? Yes, I do. We are we are the only we are the only social service provider that has funding, and and that matters because that also comes with a, a level of power in the sense that we have some agency and we have some influence. But as an organization that's the voice of the community and they're going to be advocating, I think that's challenging to the status quo. I, I we have a system in which every which we do for the community and not with, right? You know, the I, I model of charity instead of empowerment, what does empowerment look like? It, the issue of siloing services, you know, without that connection, without the, the belief that the community and the, in, has, the, has the ability and the power and how to cultivate that. How do you do that? So we, we started the AmeriCorps program. We started a program called Rise AmeriCorps. Uh, rebuild, integrate, serve, and empower. And during the crisis, we had about close to 100 members, 99 members, all throughout the state. And what's different about that is that it's a, it's a program, it's an AmeriCorps program that intentionally builds the leadership for the immigrant and refugee community. So we AmeriCorps members, this is Iowa, which is probably, you know, the top five in terms of at least the census for um, being one of the whitest states, the where we have about seventy percent of our AmeriCorps members are refugee and immigrants, but that also means that we also have AmeriCorps members who might be at different levels, right? We're not looking at like a lot of AmeriCorps members where people are, you know, young, um, motivated college students who are usually uh, white women. We're looking at community members who maybe just graduated high school. It, how can we build their leadership so that they can serve their community? And so it wouldn't have been possible without our AmeriCorps program that we were able to st start a uh, really a 24-hour helpline. We had a helpline, a crisis helpline that not only provided information, but helped you with case management, helps you get what you needed because we 
we had all these individuals who were willing to serve and we had lines by language in Iowa, right? So, but that takes a lot. It's, it, and, and it's a paired team model where we have uh, someone who is, they're matched based on their strength. So maybe someone doesn't know technology too well, or maybe they don't know the uh, American culture and the system, but they, they, they have the trust of the community and they understand the culture together and we're going to be able to do something, right? And this is in rural towns or AmeriCorps members are in rural towns and, and cities throughout Iowa. And it makes a huge difference, huge, right? The level, the, the responsiveness, the mobility, and how we can be a connector and a hub so that things are not just band-aided and triaged and then come to come back later again in crisis, you know? We don't need help one day. We need help. We need support every day. And those, our current system doesn't have that in place. Uh, we actually have an English only law, right? In Iowa, we have, we don't, we are, we're fighting because we don't have language. We don't have basic access to services because the system does not incorporate that. And for, you know, nonprofit providers and others, you know, how are we intentionally prioritizing, you know, childcare, transportation, uh, language access, you know, outreach, how are we providing a navigator or someone to help them through the process instead of just referring people out. And unless we start to say, this isn't working and what are we going to do and how are we going to do this from a place of equity that we're going to uplift community members and help them, but on their time, at their, on their timeline and meeting with them where they're at. Because I think those are all things that we say, but if you have someone who, who is, who has so much potential and promise are so motivated, what do they need in order to succeed? What does your child need in order to succeed? It's different. And it's not just one-off. It's not just interpretation. It's communication. It's support. It's mentorship. It's social services. It's all of those things. But that ultimately makes that change. I have a staff member who came to Embark right out of high school. She came right out of high school. And now, and she's been with Embark since the very beginning and um, went through, went to community college, went to finish, got her bachelor's in social work. Remarkable. But during that time, it was a flexible schedule. It was help getting scholarship. It was help with the tutor. It was mentorship and a lot, a lot of support just from the team and the community saying you can do it. And when you, and if you falter or you feel like you can't, Come to us because we're here for you. Oh, I, I, you've said a lot of remarkable things. Um, and I actually had wanted you to touch on, on a story that, that moved you. And so talking about the young woman who is now a manager and the multifaceted support over time that really led to her, you know, being empowered and, and finding her success, um, I think it's actually a wonderful, powerful way to to end the conversation, which unfortunately we have to do. I could keep talking. <laughs> just the one sort of, you know, doing with people instead of doing for people. There's just so much. And I think I think a lot of people know what to do. Um, but I think you're right that at the end of the day, that overtime commitment to multi levels of of support for people to realize their potential, which is great, 
is something that that we that the community has struggled with and still doesn't have right. And so we just have to keep on keeping on with it. Um, so we are going to wrap up. And I just want to say thank you. This conversation was sort of everything that I wanted it to be in terms of oh, you're so nice. how we Oh, You're so generous. <laughs> but Thank how you. we, how we, well, yeah, I just think, I mean, for me, you know, I've, as I said, done this a long time and I've known as long as I've done it, which has been close to 40 years that we have not succeeded in terms of um, effectively including the voice of those we serve, you know, in, in the solutions and in that empowerment journey. So I, I appreciate everything that you've said today and we will wrap it up there. So uh, just want to thank you again, honey, for sharing everything that you've shared today. And I want to thank our listeners for tuning in. And I want to remind folks that you can visit Switchboard online at www.switchboardta.org. And there you'll find online resources, e-learning, a form to request technical assistance, and a lot more. And if you haven't done it already, please do sign up for the Switchboard newsletter so that you can be notified of new resources as they come online. So thank you, Henny, again, and thank you again to our listeners. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure.